0: All right. Uh, good morning, Redemption Olds. How we doing? Good. All right. Three of you are awake. That's awesome. Let's, uh, let's do this. <laughs> well, uh, as, as they said earlier, my name is Brad. Uh, I am coming to you from Redemption Church, uh, Calgary North this morning. I am the director of youth ministry down there. And uh, my wife and I, Joe, have been going there for about three and a half years. And Several times over over those three and a half years, we've talked about coming up here to visit you guys in Olds, and and I know like two of you, so that's clearly never happened. And so uh, I guess today is God's way of saying, hey, go visit Olds. So um, if you're thinking about visiting Calgary North, I recommend you would do that, otherwise he might have you preaching there someday. So uh, make sure to do that soon. Um, As you guys probably already know, uh, Pastor John is away um, doing church planting training in Chicago. And so he's asked me to be here in his absence this morning. Um, we were corresponding by email over the last last couple of weeks, just leading up to today, and he was telling me, filling me in on what you guys have been looking at this summer, looking at some of redemption life and culture. Sound familiar? So looking at uh, prayer and worship and uh, disciple-making Just last week, he was saying how you guys were looking at eldership and how, as a body of believers, how should we respond to eldership in anticipation of installing some elders next week here. And so that's super cool for you guys as a church. And so I mentioned all that really just to say if today, what we look at today seems totally random and out of place from the track you've been on, it it is. So that's that's where the blank's coming from there. So this morning, um, I want to take you back in time. So close your eyes, picture this if you need to, go back about 300 years. There's a man whose mother taught him the Bible as a child, but when she passed away, he joined uh, his father at sea. He lost his first job at sea because of anger and behavior issues, and then at 19, he was forced into the Navy, where he later rebelled against discipline and then deserted the crew. After getting caught, he was sent to a slave ship where his arrogance and insubordination continued. And then he later wrote, Not content with running the Broadway myself, I was relentless in enticing others. And had my influence been equal to my wishes, I would have carried all the human race with me. I had the ambition of a Caesar or an Alexander and wanted to rank in wickedness among the foremost of the human race. Well, this man was later transferred to another ship and that crew was overtaken by an enormous storm. During the storm that night, he was reading about Jesus, and he was struck by a quote about the uncertain continuance of life. During the storm that night, this man became a believer. Well, Soon after that, he left the sea, and he was ordained into ministry. He would uh, have a prayer service every week, and he'd write a hymn to be sung to a familiar tune. Later on, 280 of these hymns were combined in a hymnal, including the well-known Amazing Grace. Though he wrote that the slave trade was a business at which my heart now shudders, memory of this chapter of this man's life never left him. So in his old age, when it was suggested that the increasingly feeble man retire, he simply replied what? I cannot stop. Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can speak? This man was, of course, John Newton, as you may have guessed. While well, rewind a couple thousand years more, and we have another man. This man had been blessed with riches and power, But in his pride, he remained at home while his army was out in battle. A lazy devotion to God allowed greed and covetousness to grow in his heart, and when he saw a beautiful woman bathing, he lusted after her, had her brought to him, and then lay with her and sent her home. Later, he found out that she had become pregnant. He tried to use drunkenness and deceit to cover up his sin. When that didn't work, he had her husband killed. took her to be his own wife. This man, as you may have guessed, is David, And when the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to confront him in his sin, he confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Well, these are no doubt two familiar stories and two stories that I think we can easily relate with. Both are littered with sins of pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, drunkenness, anger, rebellion, deceit, lust, seduction, resisting authority, abuse of power. In both of these cases, sins of the heart culminate in mistreatment of others, adultery, and murder. During his time on earth, Jesus set the bar higher and higher time and time again, didn't he? And I'm reminded of his words in Matthew 5, where he compares anger with murder and lustful intent with adultery. And so by Jesus' definition, any one of us could be found guilty of all of these sins. And so we too stand condemned with David and John. So if these stories and ours ended there, it would certainly be a great tragedy. But something they have in common is that both men repented of their sin turned in faith to God, and then served him wholeheartedly. Following their repentance, both men wrote songs of worship. Newton, Amazing Grace, as I said, and David, after privately praying Psalm 51, he used it for public worship. Well, what is repentance, and how do we do it? We repent through faith. Turning to God in faith and turning from sin in repentance is the same movement. You can't turn to God in faith without turning from sin in repentance. And it's not a one-time thing either. We become Christians through faith and repentance and we grow as Christians through faith and repentance. John Calvin said, God assigns to believers a race of repentance, which they are to run throughout their lives. Repentance is a lifelong continuous activity of turning back to God from God dethroning desires. So this morning we're going to take a look at Psalm 51 that David wrote and we're going to see three evidences of repentance. But before we do that, let's just pray one more time. God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for the truth that we can find in it. Lord, thank you for the reality that there is hope. There is living hope for us found in this word. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord, that repentance is possible one time when we become a Christian and then also throughout our lives, Lord, we are able to continually turn from our sin and turn back to you and your grace overflows all the more every time. So God, I pray that this morning, you would speak through these words, Lord, that it would be your words and not mine, and that you would prepare every heart to hear, Lord. Would you meet every person where they're at this morning? And Lord, would we respond appropriately to these words and bring all the glory to you in our lives? We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, you're gonna need a Bible in front of you this morning. I want you to be able to look down and see that these words are in fact God's words and not my own. So if you don't have a copy with you, just slip up your hand, and the ushers would be happy to give you a copy to borrow. Uh, Three evidences of of repentance. I'm not going to read through the psalm. We're just going to follow through the verses as as we go here and let it kind of take us where we go. So three evidences of repentance. The first one is found in verses one through six. I recognize who I am. So David begins in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So notice here that before David even begins to speak about his sins specifically, he's already pleading with God to have mercy. He knows that if he is ultimately to be forgiven for his sin, it would be an act of pure mercy. There's no other reason for that. And so he appeals right to that aspect of God's character from the very beginning of this psalm. Well, if mercy is what David's asking for, and apparently he's saying God has it in abundance, what is it? Charles Hodge describes mercy as kindness exercised towards the miserable and includes pity, compassion, forbearance, and gentleness, which the scriptures so abundantly ascribe to God. Tim Challies put it this way, God is good to those in misery and distress, and he is good to those who deserve punishment. If grace is giving something that is not deserved, then mercy is withholding something that is. Having committed adultery and murder, David was guilty of sins that in these days would have required his life of him. And so he asked God for mercy, that God would not do to him what he ultimately deserved, ultimately death. And Again, we could ask the question, how could he possibly ask God for mercy, the very God he sinned against? And we could ask that question of ourselves daily, as sinful people, how can we possibly ask God for mercy for our sin? Well the answer lies not in who David was, and not in who we are, but in who God is. Psalm one sixteen, five, Gracious is the Lord and righteous our God is merciful. Psalm one forty five verse nine, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Even in just these first few verses of this Psalm, we can feel how deeply personal this Psalm is. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David's focus is clear, really. His eyes are on himself and on his God, and that's a trend that you'll notice will continue throughout the rest of this psalm. Although he did not initially see his sin for what it was, once Nathan showed it to him, his repentance is immediate. In verses three to six, we begin the section where where David really comes face to face with the reality of who he is. Verses one and two, notice pivot on that word for in verse three, as if he's saying, have mercy on me and cleanse me from my sin. Why? Why is that needed, God? Why would you do that? Pivots on for. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The pronoun here is emphatic, almost like I myself know. And the word transgressions there has the idea of deliberately defecting or rebelling against God. And so when you put those two together, what you have David conveying is, I know that I deliberately rebelled against God. See, all along, God knew, obviously, and he had revealed that to Nathan the prophet, but it wasn't until he was confronted with his sin that David owns up to what he had done. Sometimes, I think we seem to think that we can get away with hiding our sin, don't we? And we too need to be reminded of Numbers 32, 23. Behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Well, that was certainly true here for David. That was true for Achan when he kept some of the spoil of Jericho. That was true for for Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament when they lied about the money they had given to the apostles. And it's true for you and I today. You can't hide your sin from an all-knowing God. Have you ever been there? Let's say you give in to temptation just this one time. Whatever it is for you, you give in just just this one time. But in a moment of guilt, you cover it up. You think, no one needs to know about this. It's not going to happen again. But over time, this sin takes root in your heart. And and, and over time, suddenly it's it's a habitual thing you've been struggling with for so long. You don't remember living any other way than sin. And then harden my heart. Cover it up and move on. It just repeats and repeats and repeats. And all along, all we're doing is everything we can to cover up that sin and keep anybody from knowing about it. Well, be sure your sin will find you out. Maybe it'll take a brother, sister in Christ in your small group or someone you're close with coming to you lovingly and showing you your sin before you confess it for what it really is. But in that moment, how are you going to respond? In that moment, our repentance, like David's, ought to be quick and complete instead of getting defensive or resisting correction. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And then David affirms that in Psalm 32, five. He knew this was true. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And continuing In verse 4 of our text, David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And of course, this is the verse that is, is so often taken out of context when someone's dealing with sin. They say, look at Psalm 51, look at David. He sinned against other people, but what matters most is that he got right with God. As long as God's forgiven him, he doesn't need to seek reconciliation with those around him, and neither do I. My sin is against God only. As long as God's forgiven me, I'm good. And yes, all sin is ultimately against God and his holy law. And so David is quick to confess his sin to God first. In reality, it's God who commands how we ought to live in a relationship with those around us. And so when we sin against others, we sin against God. But that being the case, David knows that even if he would be severely punished for his sin, God would still be blameless in his judgment, as he says there. In sinning against those around us, ultimately we offend God. And so we too are fully, ultimately deserving of whatever punishment might come our way. But although David's sin was first against God, he also sinned against Uriah. He also sinned against Bathsheba and the whole nation of Israel. And so he needed to be reconciled with those people as well. D.A. Carson said, Sin is social. Although it is first and foremost defiance of God, there is no sin that does not touch the lives of others. There is no sin that does not touch the lives of others. Well, I remember a time in my life when, when I was the one pulling this verse out of context. There was uh, a particular sin that I had committed against my wife, and I had totally convinced myself that as long as I got right with God, I was good. I didn't need to do the hard work of being reconciled with her. And it's funny how, sometimes in those moments, by His grace, really, God uses the smallest things to bring conviction into our hearts, doesn't he? And uh, I remember scrolling through Instagram one Saturday morning and coming across a quote that read, "Sin is not exclusively vertical or horizontal, and if you want to be free from regret, you have to address both. You have to address both." And that just crushed me in that moment. I remember. It just tore down the lies I'd been telling myself about about what I had to do with reconciliation. And praise God, that became the starting point of that very reconciliation in my marriage. I had to learn what godly grief over my sin looked like, not just worldly grief over the consequences of it or the guilt that I felt. I had to learn what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. When we sin against others, it is ultimately sin against God, but don't miss it. God desires you to be reconciled with those around you, no matter the cost. It might seem impossible to us, but he's able to redeem any situation, no matter how, how hopeless it seems to us. But it begins with us recognizing our sin and then responding appropriately. Well, it's evident just how clearly David recognizes who he is when he continues in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, note here that he's not using his sinful nature as an excuse. He's not excusing his actions with what he's saying here. He's not coming before God and saying, hey, I was doomed from the beginning. What are you going to do? One author wrote that in acknowledging his sinful nature, David is leaving no stone unturned. He goes to the very root of sin, and that's human nature. We sin because we are born sinners. David's not seeking to excuse himself, but taking an honest, hard look at the truth about himself. Like David, we need mercy. We need a change of heart. On our own, our default is always going to be to rebel against God and choose sin instead. Instead of sin, however, God delights in truth, in the inward being, as David says there, and teaches wisdom in the secret heart. That's wisdom as defined in Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Well, when we take a look at the first six verses of the psalm, it's so evident that David's fully aware of who he is and what he had done. It's at this point, before we even move on to, to the response of him, we need to stop and ask ourselves, Just personally, do I know my sin? Do you know your sin? Would you say that it's ever before you? If anything anything within me or done by me that does not bring glory to God is sin. So let's be honest with ourselves. Maybe it's your spouses you need to be honest with. Maybe it's your small groups you need to trust your accountability partners. What is it for you? It might be difficult, but the reality of the gospel played out in our lives, in our small groups, and our marriages, the reality of the gospel played out there allows us to be open and honest with each other. When you come to know your sin, are you quick to confess it and confess it completely? Or do we cover some of it up or maybe cover all of it up? And do we recognize that although my sin is ultimately against God, when I sin against others, I must be quick to be reconciled with them as well? Last fall, um, I had the privilege of spending some time every couple weeks with some other leaders from Redemption Calgary North, growing and learning together. And uh, one of the books we studied together was You Can Change by Tim Chester. Highly recommend it. Worth the read. But in it, he raises the question, what stops us from changing? And then he lists six possible reasons. What stops us from changing? Number one, maybe proud self-reliance. So this person He's mad at himself for repeating the same sin over and over again, but really, this is a veiled form of pride that assumes we're capable of doing any good in our own power. We're more concerned with our own victory over sin than we are with the very fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. So we need to realize that God wants us to walk in obedience, not victory over our sin. Maybe it's proud self-justification. We don't like to think of ourselves as bad people, And our hearts as evil, and so sometimes we just don't take responsibility for our sins. We may admit that we need to change, but we don't want to admit that we are the very problem. Self-reliance says, I'll do okay by myself. Self-justification says, I'm doing okay by myself. Making this claim involves excusing or minimizing or hiding our sin. So if we excuse our sin, we blame other people. We blame our circumstances, our context, upbringing, personal history, biology, our genes, our chemistry, whatever it might be. If we minimize our sin, we say, well, it's not that bad. Or have you seen so-and-so in my small group? He's even more messed up than I am, so I'm doing all right. We're hiding our sin. Let's say, or sorry, let's face it. We want a good reputation, don't we? We're prepared to choose sin, reject God abandon freedom, and even risk hell than have people think poorly of us. Maybe it's hating the consequences of sin, but not the sin itself. The desire to change guilt, fear, or damaged relationships can be a strong motive for seeking help. But in our heart of hearts, we still desire the sin itself. In moments of temptation, we still think it offers more than God does. Do any of those six resonate with you this morning? When we justify, excuse, or minimize, or hide our sin, really, ultimately, what we're saying is that we disagree with God. Our sin's not as bad as he says it is. Maybe confessing your sin means shattering your pride, perhaps for the first time. Maybe it means breaking down your kingdom of self-glory. Maybe it means that letting people know, your small groups, your spouses, whoever it might be, let them know that you don't have it all together, and you can't do it all on your own. But so what? It might cost you greatly, but I can guarantee you it will not cost you as much as it costs Jesus for you to be able to do that. So lay it all down at the foot of the cross. Confess your sin to God. And then remember that joy restoring change is God's work. And then we'll see that in 7 to 12. We need to remember what only God can do in 7 to 12. So verse 7, David carries on saying, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Anyone use hyssop in their day-to-day this week? No. David is using figurative language here that would have been familiar to the people of Israel. So hyssop was used by the priests in the sprinkling of sacrificial blood and it represented the removal of sin through the shedding of blood. It was often used in the cleansing of lepers or other people that were considered unclean in those days. You can see that reference Leviticus 14.6 or Numbers 19, 16 to 19. It was also used in Exodus 12.22. During the Passover, the Israelites used it to apply the blood of a lamb to their doorposts. And then when the uh, angel of the Lord passed through Egypt, he passed through the doorposts with that sign and he struck down the firstborn of man and animal that did not have that sign. And so, it's with this understanding of what hyssop's used for that David prays these words, purge me with hyssop. In the same way that the priest had to act on behalf of a sinner to declare them clean, David is asking God to act on his behalf, figuratively purging him with hyssop in order to cleanse him from the moral defilement that he's feeling. Because of his sin, he views himself as unclean, as unfit to stand in God's presence. And so, he needs the inward cleansing that this outward ceremony represented, and he reiterates that need for purification with wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. As blood or, blood or dirt would stain a garment, so his sins are a moral stain on him that he cannot remove on his own. But he knows that God can do it. God's able to remove his stain from him. Isaiah 1:18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Under Mosaic law at that time, a person who was unclean would have been excluded from the temple and from temple worship until they were purified. And so because of his sin, David's feeling unclean and separated from his relationship with God. But what he desires is for that relationship to be restored and for joy to be found when he's dwelling in a right relationship with God. So he desires gladness that comes from being in the temple from worship. So he cries, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. It might go without saying, but broken bones there is metaphorical. And it represents a weariness that comes with being separated from God. It represents him as a whole person and the personal collapse that he feels because of his guilt. He recalls this time later in Psalm 32, 2 and 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. In the same way that a doctor today might re break a healing bone in order for it to grow properly if it isn't, David feels as if he's been broken by God. And he's confident that he'll be able to regain his strength and joy found in right relationship with God when he's been broken here and then he's growing in a right relationship with God. But in order to have that joy restored, David knows that something has to be done about his sin. And he can't do that on his own. On his own, he got into this mess, and now his sin's ever before him. So he prays, verse 9 Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He knows that God, being who God is by his very nature, won't forget sin, but he can choose not to recall it. He can choose not to look upon it with displeasure. And so he makes that request of God knowing it's the same God Micah speaks of in chapter 7, 18 to 19. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. As we noted before, David knew that his sin penetrated to the very core of who he is. And that's the same with us today. So what can we do about that? If sin penetrates our very core, what are we going to do? And again, Chester says, It seems our first instinct when we want to change is to do something. We think activity will change us. We want a list of do's and don'ts. In David and Jesus' day, people thought they could be pure through ceremonial washing. Today, it can be spiritual disciplines or sets of laws. But the Puritan John Flavel said, We're more able to stop the sun in its course or make rivers run uphill than we are by our own skill and power to rule and order our hearts. Our rituals might change our behavior for a while, but they can't change our hearts. David knew that any hope of him would have to be external from the inside out. And he also knew that his sin was not a one-time thing. In fact, one sin led to another, as we saw earlier, and he knows that this pattern would continue apart from a change of heart. He knows that his sin is quite simply the fruit of what is in his heart. And simple behavior modification is not the solution that he needs. And Jesus confirmed this in Mark 7, 21 to 23. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, and the list goes on there. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And so David knows that and he prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. One author said he sees his sins as polluting his heart. And so he wants a radical change of heart and spirit, not a restoration of what was there before. We don't need restored hearts. We need new hearts because our very hearts are the problem. And David's understanding of that is so clear. When you think about that word create that he uses in there, creating me a clean heart, that's the same word used in Genesis 1 when it says God created the heavens and the earth. I think what his word choice represents to us really is two things. Number one, he knows that if if he had any hope of change it would have to be something totally new created in him from the out, or sorry from the inside out. And then he's also confident that just as in creation God could simply speak that one word and it would be done. Then in verse 11 David voices what is undoubtedly really probably one of his biggest fears saying cast me not away from your presence and take not your holy spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Well, in the Old Testament times, the king as God's chosen ruler over his people had a special filling of the Holy Spirit, but not living obedience to God or fulfilling the duties of his role could result in being removed from the throne. David saw that happen to Saul before his very eyes. In fact, in 1 Samuel 15, 34, it reads, And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Then in chapter 16, David's anointed king and spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. And then in verse 14, we learn that that very moment, the spirit departed from Saul. The very moment it entered David, it departed from Saul. And so David's afraid that because of his sin, because he hasn't been faithful to God, God might regret making him king and then replace him as well. So he prays that God would not do that, but instead restored him joy found in salvation and his sins being forgiven. We know that, in today's New Covenant context, all believers are sealed with the Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, that is, eternal life. And uh, you would have learned about that in Ephesians last year when you were looking at Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus taught that about that in, in John 14 as well. If you're in Christ today, you don't risk, risk losing the Spirit when you sin. Really, we all sin every single day. But when you sin, you can certainly grieve and quench the Spirit, therefore losing the joys, but not the reality of His indwelling. But when David realized the sin in his life, he immediately turned to God and confessed it, knowing that he couldn't change change who he was on his own. And so if you recognize some sin or pattern of it in your life, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to change? At some point, we've probably all realized what doesn't work, and that's trying to change ourselves. Again, Chester had some thoughts on that. Maybe it's making a promise to yourself. I will never do that sin again. Maybe you develop a daily routine. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to do my devotions. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to come home. I'm going to help out my wife. We're going to do whatever we need to do that night. Then I'm going to watch TV or read a book for an hour, and then I'm going to go to bed. If I stick to that plan, I'll avoid that sin because I won't have time to sin. Or maybe you regulate your behavior with lists of things that you do and, and don't do or places you can and can't go. And we all have a strong tendency to want to live by a list of rules, but it's called legalism, and it's it's appealing for a couple of reasons. Number one, it makes holiness manageable. So a heart wholly devoted to God is a tough thing to do, but a list of a few do's or don'ts—that's something I could cope with. That was the motivation of the expert in the law when uh, Jesus was talking to him about love for my neighbor. That was the motivation of his question: Well, who is my neighbor? He wanted to check the love for my neighbor box. But Jesus' story about the Good Samaritan blew his manageable system apart, and so he couldn't cope with that. And then second, legalism makes holiness an achievement on our part. It says, yes, I was saved by grace, but I'm the godly person I am today because I've kept this code of behavior and practiced these spiritual disciplines. Well, this means that we need to repent not only of our sin, but also of our righteousness when we think of it as our righteousness. Paul understood that in Philippians 3, verse 8 and 9. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Chester, in this section, highlights one counseling situation where somebody's is describing a, a three-year period of hopelessness in his life. So this guy's telling the story, and when he finishes, the pastor says to him, I don't think you're hopeless enough. And this man thought he was kidding, but the pastor with a straight face carries on. If you were completely hopeless, you would stop trusting in what you think you can do to change the situation, and you would start trusting in what Jesus Christ has already done for you on the cross. A light went on, he said. For months afterward, every time he felt hopeless, he would say to himself, I am a hopeless person, but Jesus Christ died for hopeless people. I love that. Take that sentence, memorize it, throw it in your toolbox, use it for yourself this week. I am a blank person, but Jesus Christ died for blank people. When you wake up, when you face temptation, when you fall into sin, when you're going to sleep, let the cry of your heart be, I am a, and fill in the blank person for whatever it is for you, but remind yourself the promise and the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for people like me. Jesus does what legalism can never do. He gives us a new heart and a new spirit. Without that inner transformation, we can never please God. And that's the reality of all of our lives, really, on our own. Every one of us is a slave to our sinful desires, and we can never please God. We just can't. Now, it's possible that maybe you're here today and you're hearing that word for the very first time. Maybe you've heard it a few times and you really just don't know. You can't wrap your mind around what that really means. Sin. Sin that I need to repent of. Really, dude, who do you think you are telling me I need to live another way? And who is this Jesus? Well, if you're not in Christ this morning, or maybe you've been coming to church your whole life and you've never submitted your life to him, you need to know that God created you to bring glory to him. But if you've never repented of your sin, you've never been cleansed from it, like David's asking for. You've never experienced, you can't experience true lasting joy while sin separates you from God. Like me, like David, like all of us, we need new hearts. But the good news, as I said, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came and he lived a perfect life. And in his death on the cross, he bore the full weight of God's wrath for our sin. This morning, God is calling you to a broken heart over your sin. To turn from it in repentance. To embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Then you'll know the joy of salvation when not only are your sins completely forgiven, but you're also granted eternal life in heaven, where we'll once again find that perfect joy David's seeking when we dwell in perfect relationship with him. So if we recognize who we are, and then we remember what only God can do, then how do we respond? We'll find that out in verses 13 to 19. He carries on in verse 13. Then, that is, when all that he's asked for has been done, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The most appropriate response for any one of us for our sins being forgiven is to tell somebody else about that and bring all the glory to God. David's saying, God... When you forgive my sin and when you change my heart out of great thankfulness for all that you've done for me, something I didn't deserve, I'll teach other sinners about you. And when they too see their sin, they'll turn to you in repentance. When he finds that joy again, because his relationship with God is restored, he can't help but keep others from falling into sin like he did. When he's delivered from guilt for the blood he shed, that ultimately he deserved death. When he's been given that second chance, he can't help but sing aloud of God's righteousness and declare God's praise. One author put it this way, pardon for the repentant, like us and like David, is as much a manifestation of God's righteousness as judgment on the unrepentant. For that, he's worthy of worship. For that, he is worthy of praise. Think of it this way. Let's say you're going through a really tough time at work. You, you made a bunch of bad decisions, you cost the company a lot of money, and uh, you made them look pretty bad, and you're pretty sure that you're going to lose your job. And so, sure enough, Friday morning rolls around. The boss calls you into his office, and he says, listen, I know what you did, and you know what you did. And at that point, what can you really say but I'll go pack my things, right? But instead of firing you, he says, I want you at this company so badly that I paid back all that money out of my own pocket, and I will never bring this up again. Not only that, but I'm going to personally mentor you and help you out moving forward because you clearly have no idea what you're doing. So how, how pumped would you be? Not only do you get to keep your job, but your mistakes are forgiven. He's going to help you out moving forward. Every time anyone would ask you how you're doing from that point on, what can you say but how great is my boss? Let me tell you what he did for me. And that's part of the reason we're here this morning, isn't it? To glorify God and worship, to open up our mouths in praise. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you have been forgiven so much. Do we even realize how much we've been forgiven in Christ? And so, let your tongue sing aloud. The Lord's opened your lips. Let your mouth in worship declare his praise this morning. Go out from here today and tell somebody about Jesus and what he's done for you. In just a few minutes, we're gonna, the team's going to come up. We're going to close here singing, Death Was Arrested. I love the words of that song when Josh sent them to me. From the depths of your forgiven heart, cry these out in worship today. If you're a believer in Christ, you have every reason to sing these words. Oh, your grace so free. It washes over me. You've made me new. Now, life begins with you. It's your endless love pouring down on us. You have made us new. Now, life begins with you. Released from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt and called me his friend when death was arrested and my life began. Believers, single out of his righteousness. Declare his praise. Make it your goal to use every opportunity in your life to bring praise to him. Every opportunity. And I know sometimes we get wrapped up in the day-to-day of of life and you think, "How how do I do that? How do I do that? How do I bring glory to God? in the mundane moments of the week. Just ask yourself that question. Am I in this moment bringing glory to God? You either are, you aren't. Am I confessing my inadequacy, but then asking him to work through me and giving him the praise when he does that? Listen, the Bible may not speak specifically to every situation you go through in your week. It doesn't. But if you devote your life to the faithful pursuit of that book and the study of it, and day in, day out, you submit your life to becoming more like Christ, that is going to make you more like Christ. And in that alone, you are more than equipped to equip any situation he'll call you to in your week and then bring glory to him in the process. Well, why would we respond that way? Why why would we respond in worship and praise? And really, that's all we can do, isn't it? There's no other response that pleases God. Verse 16 For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Again, we've hit this a few times, but David can only respond in praise because he knows that under Mosaic law, adultery and murder were two sins that were not forgiven. Sacrifices didn't cover them. And so, apart from God's mercy, His ultimate end is death. All he can do is echo the words of Micah 6:6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Sacrifices God desires of you this morning is not works of righteousness that somehow atone for your sin. He doesn't want your works. He doesn't want you to serve in the church. He doesn't want your time or your money. Out of thankfulness for what he's done for you, certainly give him all those things. But what he desires from you is a broken heart that instead of sin, pursues justice, kindness, and walks humbly with him; that heart he will not despise. And the psalm closes in verse eighteen with, "Do good to Zion in your good pleasure; build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar." There's some debate uh, between scholars about the authorship of these last two psalm or sorry, these last two verses, whether they were. Uh, written by David at the same time as the rest of the psalm, or if they were added later perhaps when the Israelites were in exile. And I think it was David as a final plea that connects with his request in verse 11. As the Lord's anointed king over Israel, any any consequences for David's sin would surely in some way affect the people of Israel as well. Despite the publicity of his sin in this this situation, he doesn't want that to negatively affect the people of Israel. And so he boldly asks God to do good design, building up its walls both literally in that time as defenses against attacks of other nations, but also figuratively strengthening the moral defenses of Israel. When David and the whole nation of Israel are dwelling in right relationship with their God, then those sacrifices done in worship would again be pleasing to the Lord. Well, we know... From the rest of David's story, if you've explored that before, that there were negative consequences for his sin. The child born to Bathsheba became sick and passed away, but we still see God's steadfast love for his people. Bathsheba conceives again, and this time Solomon's born, and one day he becomes a great king. For David, there are consequences for this sin that can be traced through generations to come, but his sin is forgiven. And he affirms that in Psalm 32. Then later on, we read in 2 Samuel 5 10 and 12. And David became greater and greater. Why? For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Well, the story ends well here for David and with John Newton earlier, as we saw. Sorry, with John Newton earlier because they both turned from their sin in repentance and then turned in faith to God. And this morning, God is calling you to know your sin and be reconciled with him. Maybe be reconciled with those around you. I pray that you would do that today, maybe even for the first time. If you've known your sin for 10 minutes or 10 years, his love is steadfast, just the same, and his mercy remains abundant. So let today be the day that you bring that darkness to light. Again, maybe even for the first time, confess it to someone. There's no reason to bear that burden alone. You've been given this body of Christ for a reason. And so share that with somebody. I can almost guarantee you that there is somebody here today who has already been through what you're going through today. And they've been through it. They can help you through it. They'd love to partner with you and pray with you and help you through it. Track down somebody in your small group. Maybe it's one of your elders There's people here today that would love to pray with you after service today. But when we recognize that we're sinful people, we can humbly lay our lives down at the foot of the cross. When we remember that it's only God's work that can change us and save us, we can repent of that self-righteousness and just cling again to the cross. When our hearts have been cleansed and we've been forgiven, we can confidently go out from here and proclaim Christ and his death.